Hello, cinefans. I'm Kendall Kruver, and this is Watching Classic Movies. When the movies were new, Vitagraph was the most successful film studio in the world. This was a time where as much as 85% of the population was seeing movies on a regular basis. That number is now less than 10%, by the way. Vitagraph's innovations are numerous and influential to the present day, but the impact of the company has been overlooked in accounts of the time. Until now, I spoke with Andrew Erish, author of Colonel William N. Selig, The Man Who Invented Hollywood, about his new book, Vitagraph, America's First Great Motion Picture Studio, in which he sets the record straight and tells a fascinating story about the tumultuous birth of American cinema. Thank you for talking to me today, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Kendall. Now, this book, such an overwhelming amount of new information to me. So many things to think about. When you talk about Vitagraph to people, how do you do it? How, how, you know, it's, it's not really an elevator speech kind of thing. How, how do you introduce them to this concept, the importance of it? You know, I... I try to convey the idea of getting back to when movies were brand new and they had to start from somewhere and the stories we've been told the history books uh we've read uh, about how they began who the major players were and all that are actually wrong and the real story i think is much more interesting than even the myths that have evolved over the decades about the beginning of the movies. And it's a far richer early history than we could have ever imagined. And, you know, the kind of on the one hand, the sad thing is that information has been there all these years. And no one's really bothered to check into that. So it's kind of exciting for me. I'm one of those people, and maybe you are too, I've seen tons of movies in my life. I'm just a, a movie nut. And you get to the point where, well, what's new? I've seen everything. Yeah. And when I started to look into the very beginning of cinema, it was all new to me. And it, it just blew my mind um, how much mis misinformation was out there and how many really interesting and or entertaining films there are that have survived that we haven't seen. So you found out about Vitagraph by, by looking for new material then? Well, I did. When I was doing research for my first book on Colonel Selig, you keep running into this company called Vitagraph, which was the biggest company, not only in America, but in the world for many years. And there just isn't that much written about it. So after I finished the Selig book, I thought, you know, there really ought to be something about Vitagraph, a more comprehensive book than what we have. Um, it just, it just seemed kind of possessed to do that. I don't know. What surprised me about it was that I didn't have a concept of Vitagraph as this hugely successful studio, but I did know some of the films and oh, some of the players. Oh, I mean, I'd heard oh. of Maurice Costello and John Bunny. I'd seen humorous faces of Funny Faces and Princess uh -huh. Nicotine, but I even kind of vaguely remember seeing maybe a Vitagraph logo in front of some short thing I looked at on YouTube. But I didn't have a concept about how huge it was. Yeah. And 
it seems to me there's a lot of villains in the piece here. There are a few. There are a couple of real big ones whose names are familiar to most people. And then there are some kind of smaller villains along the way. Edison is the one that got me. He's yeah. He was a litigious gentleman. He was. And when you're doing research into the movies, you think, was it just the movies? And when you go through all the Edison biographies, you realize he was litigious with everyone, with every invention, with everything he could um, try to get his hands on. He is credited with an awful lot of things that he doesn't deserve credit for. He was and a hero in elementary school. He was presented as that. To, ge to generations, absolutely. Um, and he really made life difficult for fellow American filmmakers. It's one of the reasons when we hear about French filmmaking very early on, and we hear about the Lolliers, and then we hear about George Millier, and then uh, the Pathé Company, they're very prominent in the very early history of film. One of the key reasons is that Edison was so litigious that it was hard for the American industry to get off the ground. And, and they managed to do amazing work uh, in the face of formidable um, legal challenges. So in spite of them. In spite of them, yeah. I had this theory that the progress that he impeded has extended to this day, that the whole industry looks different. Is that a little dramatic, or is there something you to know, that? Kendall, I've had the same thought. <laughs> so we're either both nuts or there is something. <laughs> either um, could be true. You never know. Yeah, I, I think there might be something to that. The more you research things, the more you realize nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens all of a sudden. There's so much thought, and there's a whole process to the way that things develop. And... It's interesting to think that if these barriers weren't in the way, how things might have developed, certainly more quickly, but with you know creative minds that weren't allowed to flourish for a particular time, what they might have contributed as well. And J. Stuart Blackton. Yes. And, and Albert E. Smith. So these are the two founders of Vitagraph. Yeah. They, they had something remarkable going. I mean, a family atmosphere in the studio. Yes, truly. Innovations left and right with animation, narrative form, and a kind of social element to their films that seem very progressive. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's really amazing to you know, become aware of that social aspect. The interracial adoption one, uh, yeah. father and father and son, a Chinese, father and son. Yes. the Chinese launderer who adopts a young white boy. This it's such a good film. It's so moving. Yeah. And um, the Easter Lily, uh, Easter Lily. Yes, yeah, and and Easter Lily, I think, is the title of it. A, a white boy and then a black girl who was the daughter of a laundress. Yes. Th yes. These are remarkable films. You don't see this. In the studio age? Not at all. Not at all. And, and it really took some time. You know, some people say, well, after World War II, things changed uh, in the big studios. But it took, for films like that, it took even longer. And these are so simple and so straightforward. And yet also, you know, they're very moving stories, but they are 
condemning uh, prejudices that were very prevalent throughout society. And this is the most successful company at the time doing it. You know, they're, they're making pure entertainment as well, but they're making an awful lot of movies like this. And, it, you know, you get to the old argument. Are movies merely a reflection of its, their audience, or can they direct the thinking of an audience? And I look at Vitagraph, and they're making movies that other people weren't. Mm-hmm. And definitely having an impact on their audience at the time. And I only wish that, um, you know, Vitagraph was imitated in so many ways in the business model and things like that, and some aesthetic, many aesthetic ways. But in terms of content, I wish they had been mimicked even more. Yeah, I can see how the technical innovations, you can see a direct line to other kinds of genres, styles, that sort of thing. But it is a shame that social element is the one thing that didn't survive. It's almost like this tone they have overall of of kindness and community. Yeah. I believe the industry as a whole would have had a different character if they'd been able to... Yeah. Yeah. Adolf Zucker, another villain in the piece of Paramount. The way he... Zucker. Zucker? Adolf Zucker. The way he harassed them. Yeah, and, you know, they weren't the only ones, but they probably got it worse than anyone else. Definitely. It's interesting. In in any business, most people have a live-and-let-live attitude towards their competitors. You know, okay, I've got competition. I'll try to do the best I can and, and beat the competition. There are always a handful of people in any business that... Uh, I can't stand competition. I want it all for myself and will go out of their way to, you know, destroy or discredit or whatever, minimize the competition as much as they can. And Zucker was definitely guilty of that. He he would fit. In a, in a big way. Yeah. It, it makes me think of a lot of people in tech, frankly. Yeah, yeah. It seemed very much like that. Yeah, absolutely. How little absolutely. is How little is new. Yes. Another character in the story here that I found interesting, because he had the potential to be a villain as well, but he ended up being a great ally, is um, Pop Rock, yes. who partnered with, yeah. with these two. Yeah. I, yeah. I, they, I, they wouldn't have survived without him, would they? They wouldn't have survived without him. He entered the business with the worst of intentions. Yeah. And yeah, you know, he saw them as easy prey. Uh, Blackton and Smith were vaudevillians, kind of on the lower rungs of vaudeville, and they were not savvy in business at all. You know, both of these guys had to quit school to begin apprenticeships to help support their families in jobs that they didn't particularly like. They both aspired to be entertainers on the vaudeville stage, and then once they started that, they fell in love with the movies. They saw some of the very first movies in 1895 and both said, we got to do this, <laughs> if only to add to their um, vaudeville act uh, component. But Edison was too formidable and wanted to shut them down from the beginning. And Pop Rock was someone who saw these guys were making money and progressing in this business in spite of all that and i think he was 
saw them as kind of easy marks. I want to get in <laughs> on the action here. And it turns out he was so... The, the, the thing that kills me, I really appreciate about him, is how he helped develop the exhibition business of motion pictures. Hmm. So, you know, these guys are dealing in their early part of Vitagraph before there are movie theaters. Yeah. So where do you where do you take this stuff? Where do you <laughs> show it? One of the places uh, that Vitagraph and, and a couple of the others innovated were things called black tent shows, which you would see at carnivals and circuses, a, a separate dedicated black tent that they would run movies in. So it's kind of a, a portable theater, hmm. if you will. And they would show up at summer resorts and things like that. It must have gotten awful hot inside those black tents. <laughs> but one of my favorite uh, venues was Pop Rock had a, uh, made a uh, contract with a company called the Kickapoo Indian Medicine Company, which were sending out medicine shows to the uh, rural and small town areas of the United States. And this is the way that people in those places, kind of underserved areas, saw movies for the first time. You know, the, the um, snake oil pitchman would run a movie, a crowd would gather in a town square or at a crossroads, mm -hmm. and then he would sell this, you know, so-called patent medicine that was about 93% alcohol, guaranteed <laughs> to cure any ailment. But this was also another early venue for movies until the Nickelodeon era. In addition to vaudeville theaters, and then and then the movie theaters, which they also had some yeah. ownership yes. in. Yeah. And now and now you can stream. This is right. What's so remarkable? There's thousands of films, a few hundred remain, mm -hmm. but you can see many of them yes. online. Yes. For free. Yeah. Um. What are what? Would you recommend to people who, who wanted to search out Vitagraph films? What are some good places to find them? Some of the best places, uh, a great place to start is called iFilm, which is... Um, I like eyeball eye. Yeah. The, the, it's the kind of online component for the Netherlands Film Museum. They acquired well over 100 Vitagraph uh, films from the estate of an old Dutch exhibitor who kept all these films in pristine condition. Wow. And they've made these films available on the web to anyone um, to look at for free. And my recommendation would be if you get the book and you're reading about a particular film that piques your curiosity, see if it's online. Mm -hmm. um, the prints in the iFilm collection tend to be far better quality than a lot of the kind of third-generation prints you might get from a YouTube supplier. And print quality can make all the difference in uh, appreciating a film. Yes. Uh, but there's also, you know, I have it right here. There is an organization, I think it's called um, the National Film Preservation. Oh, yes. And they're the ones that preserved an Easter Lily and Princess Nicotine and some of the other, um, you know, really great Vitagraph films. So National Film Preservation Foundation is another one. Okay. Um, and to not only see Vitagraph, but other uh, films by early filmmakers that have just 
haven't been seen in years. That That is a great overall site for digging yeah. around. Yeah, definitely. What films that you came across in your research that you couldn't see do you wish you could have seen? Oh. I mean, there's if there's thousands, I imagine there's a few. That's a great question. Um, it can be a bit overwhelming. <laughs> there's there's a film, the very first. I'm not a I'm not big on film theory, but the very uh, first person to write a from a kind of a film theory perspective in the United States uh, did so in 1914, and he just. He was thinking about films in ways that no one else was, at least in print. And he uh, had a book published of essays about film. And he wrote about a particular Vitagraph film called Battle Hymn of the Republic. Oh, yes. I remember reading about that in your book. Yeah. Yeah. That, that movie is kind of in three distinct parts. And part of it is about Julia Ward Howe, who wrote Battle Hymn of the Republic and her inspiration and getting the song to President Lincoln. And uh, another part of the um, story is a fictional story about a woman whose husband dies early in the Civil War. And now her son comes of age and says, I, I want to go fight, Mom. And she doesn't want him to go. She can't stand the thought of losing her son as well as having lost her husband. And then she hears Battle Hymn of the Republic and has a change of heart. And there's also an allegorical piece where figures from the past, everyone from George Washington to Jesus, kind of come alive <laughs> in a kind of an allegorical representation of lyrics. And it sounds like a fascinating film. There are a couple of archives that have prints, but the prints are in such bad condition mm. that I was unable to see it. So I'm really hoping that a good print surfaces somewhere because the written record of it, and especially the way that this fellow uh, wrote about the film in 1914, he said there are two great films that I've seen. Really, two films have been made of a standard that is, I equate with great literature, great, you know, great poetry and all that. And that was one of the films. So for that recommendation alone, uh, it might not, we might not have that reaction today, but I'd certainly like mm -hmm. to see for yourself. Myself, yeah. I mean, it is interesting what Griff, it's so heavy on Griffith. What we see is the classics. Yeah. But then when you dig into this other stuff, it becomes a richer portrait really there's Absolutely. so much more to see what of these films that you can see that people can access would you recommend for somebody wanting to get to know Vitagraph oh boy there are so many there um there's one that's available on iFilm I can't remember if it's the complete version or not called um oh let me see I've got a cheat sheet with me here oh How States Are Made which is the first movie about the Oklahoma land rush oh and that was recreated very famously in a William S. Hart movie, his last film called Tumbleweeds, oh. 1925. And then um, I believe it was a Best Picture winner, Cimarron, from 1930, recreates the Oklahoma land rush, kind of steals some clips from the William S. Hart film. And then MGM remade Cimarron in 1960 with Glenn Ford uh, in a big screen format. And then 
there was far and away the Ron Howard film with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman recreating it again. Well, here's the first version of it. The guy who made it was a director named Roland Sturgeon, who was Vitagraph's great filmmaker of westerns. And his westerns have, I, I can only think of them as a, an Italian neorealism aesthetic. <laughs> they just seem like such slices of life without any um, kind of sentimental flourish. So that as you're looking at this first version of the land rush, which was made only about 20 years after the actual land rush. That's um, something. Which is something. It says a lot about the authenticity of the earlier films as well. Critics wrote, were wondering, were there cameras that actually photographed the real land rush? <laughs> because this looks like a documentary telling of this story. And it's really interesting to see the choices that were made in telling the story of the land rush in 1912. It says something about how advanced they were in their storytelling already that somebody would think that. I mean, I know yeah. that people were introduced to film through a documentary perspective, through just capturing daily life. Right. Yeah. Movement I, for the sake of movement. Exactly. And, and documenting movement. So to stage it so it looks as realistic right. is, is remarkable. Yeah. I, I did want to go back on just the... Now, what was the name of the person who wrote the book in 1914? Oh, um, Bashel Lindsay. Oh, of course. That rings a bell. Yeah. So that was one of the very first people to write about film, period. He was the first, really, in America. And I just think that that, that, that is some, a remarkable document. Close... Yeah. You know, right in the moment. Yeah. Absolutely. So completely different from looking back. Yeah. Because in yeah. just this book overall, it's it's about who tells the stories, who gets who gets to do this, who gets to do it, how they do it, the process of how it developed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, nothing happens by accident, and you have to make certain choices along the way. Yeah. I, I think that. One of the keys to the success of Blackton and Smith was that they were young men when they founded Vitagraph. And they were immigrants, you know, just fueled by the American dream. They wanted to succeed, and they had the energy and um, kind of the energy that is kind of special for New York City, and kind of this go-getter attitude. And... So many of their films reflect this idea of people wanting to achieve a better life in many different kinds of ways that's told. And it reflected who these guys were. And they really caught the zeitgeist of maybe the biggest wave of American immigration in the 20th century that was happening, you know, in the late 1800s through the end of the First World War or so. And once they started to get older, like most of us, when we get older, we're not exactly tapping into what the younger generations are. The kids. You know, we don't know what the kids are dealing with. Blackton and Smith really didn't have a handle on the Roaring Twenties at all. They still made some really good films, but they tended not to be contemporary films. 
they tended to be films uh, historical, set in the recent or distant past, and they were very well made, you know, beautifully crafted. But they weren't happy. They weren't reflecting the audience that was going to movies. People like to see movies about themselves, uh, to an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of the, the say the big audience does. That's going to go every week. And, and I should also mention that more people were going to the movies back then, by far, than mm-hmm. today. Um, uh, a enormous percentage of the population, as much as. 85% of the population was seeing movies on a weekly basis. And it's much less than 10% now. Wow. Industry has stopped reporting those figures. They stopped in the 90s when it dipped b- below 10%. So it's somewhere below 10% now. So You know. Yeah. So movies were just uh, captivating the world. It had such a hold on everyone. It, it put in context like that, I think Vitagraph, uh, it, it's hard to understand just how big they were in the scheme of things back then. And looking back on it, and I know you talked about how to introduce Vitagraph to people earlier, but, but just overall, what do you need people to know about Vitagraph? Like, what is the most vital thing about it? It's it's probably twofold. One is, movies wouldn't be what they are today without Vitagraph. We can see things that they developed in every subsequent film that we take for granted. One of my favorite examples of that is uh, they were the first to make um, stop-motion special effects films. And the first movies they did like that uh, were uh, uh, toys coming to life. And there's a beautiful movie... Uh, Little Joe's Christmas, something like that, where uh, a boy who lives on the streets um, is taken in by a family. He falls asleep, and he's been given a Christmas present by this family and its little uh, toy circus performers, and they come to life on his nightstand, all within the same shot. And then he wakes up, and almost a 100 years later, the very first computer-generated feature is Toy Story, and it's about a little kid's toys that come to life and have a life of their own when no one's around. It's the same idea. I, I would bet everything I have that they never, the people that made Toy Story never heard of these Vitagraph films, and yet it's the same idea. Mm-hmm. And that idea in a different technology started then, and... Various technologies uh, have been introduced to replicate that over the years. So there's interesting continuities going on like that. The other thing I would say, the takeaway is, don't trust anything you read in film history books, especially <laughs> about the early early history of motion pictures in, in America, because it's yeah. flat out wrong. Well, you've done a lot to correct the record. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's been great to talk to you, Andrew, and thank you for this wonderful book. It, it deserves... Oh, thank you so much. It deserves to endure as a classic. It was, you know, a revelation for me, and I, I recommend it to anyone. So thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. 
For show notes, including links to Vitagraph films and more information about Andrew Arish's book, Vitagraph, America's First Great Motion Picture Studio, go to watchingclassicmovies.com. Thank you for listening. This is Kendall Kruver, Watching Classic Movies. Until next time.